0: Maybe. Has everybody got a copy of these? I want to think about one particular verse together. But I thought it would be great if we began this by reading the first two paragraphs together. And uh, then we'll talk a little bit. I want to tell you some stories. And I'll tell you why I'm thinking about this particular sentence. Let's just read the first two. Uh, James said... uh, no, this doesn't have the beginning. You know what? There's a there is a problem. There is a problem since <laughs> the the duplicating machine read it wrong. Look at that. The duplicating machine read it wrong. I mean. Okay, so never mind about (laughs) Okay, no, no, no you clearly see that the duplicate do you remember the end of 2001 when Hal gets mad? (laughs) So it looks like Hal got mad here and just randomly tried What? It's at the end on the first page on the right to live in the
1: Reason,
0: for those no, 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 no. Okay.
1: No,
0: so this is a once-in-a-lifetime printout of that. Does Phyllis have the right one? You read us the first two paragraphs. Just read the first paragraph, okay. The Great Way.
1: The Great Way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised
0: the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. Okay, we'll, we'll take it. So, and I had said earlier that when I first read this decades ago, in a sort of a cavalier um, way, which I'm not so proud of, because cavalier is never a, such an acceptable kind of a way to be, I thought to myself well forget that I you know I have so many preferences I'm not going to make it and uh, I don't it was discouraging to me because I don't like to take any kind of a course or a class that I don't think I'm going to get an A in. I just like to do well in things. so it's a, this is a prescription don't have any preferences but what, what I what I have come to discover after all these years and it's written so nicely in this particular commentary. I, I knew it before this commentary, is that it's not about not having preferences. The mind has preferences. It's not being addicted to it. It's not having an imperative in the mind when what happens and it's not your preference. We you have to say, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And now what will I do? It's not about, uh, it's not, about not caring what happens. It's a really important difference. So the reason I wanted to talk about it this week particularly is I wanted to talk about the line that says, to know the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. Because I think that's such a an interesting kind of a, a line. To know the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. Ga- James told me uh, last night when I saw him, it's interesting because he said, I have a favorite line from it. And James's favorite line came out first this morning as if the fax machine was listening to James in some weird way. He said, "Stop talking and thinking and there is nothing you will not be able to know." James said, "That's my favorite line." Isn't that weird? And that's what the duplicator printed out as best. Okay. As the first? Your line is in the second paragraph. My line is in the second paragraph. Do not search for the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. So let's think about some stories because I'm going to ask you about to think about cherishing opinions. I'll just tell you some examples. This last week I went uh, i I uh, heard the opera uh, Madame Butterfly. Anybody knows the story of Madame Butterfly? Before going to Madame Butterfly i I wasn't looking forward to it. I said, you know, it's my least favorite, of maybe up to top, and I love opera, and I go all the time, and I really get upset by it. I don't like the idea of the American lieutenant uh, sailor arriving in Japan, having a liaison with a Japanese woman, uh, leaving her pregnant, going back to the United States, coming back two years later, promising he'll come back, coming back two years later. With an American wife and wanting, uh, and uh, with, with no intention of taking up with her, finding out he has a child and then wanting to take the child back with him and give him a proper upbringing with the American wife. Everything about that, yeah, is that, yeah, everything about that, <laughs> Morrison Boo, his, everything about it, the, the lack of women's autonomy, the fact, the, the American imperialism. What else is wrong with that story? I mean everything is wrong with that story. Angie kills herself. Uh, everything is a matter with that story. And I said I don't like to go because it has all these themes that aggravate me and I always get aggravated. So, so I was going with the with the sense in my mind, alas. Okay, uh, but I, I won't enjoy it because I never enjoy it. So that's already an opinion. <laughs> uh thinking well my my psyche gets tripped up over the imperialism this and that so I go and actually I enjoyed it quite a lot and I thought it was two reasons that I enjoyed it accidentally I enjoyed it (laughs) that happened because the singing was really glorious and and uh Patricia Reset is a wonderful singer and it, it was really glorious singing beautiful staging very imaginative and also, on the way, I had convinced myself, because I thought about it, as a matter of fact, not only, I could think about uh, Puccini bringing up that topic, and I could think, well, good, you know. He was probably the whistleblower of his time, you know, way before, this is, he's writing at the turn of the 20th century, so in the 19, early 1900s. And so I made up a story, which I didn't realize was a story until I subsequently discovered. I said, you know, he must have been like one of those whistleblowers like Edward Snowden or something, commenting on society and commenting on American imperialism and commenting on the uh, dreadful position that women were in in that culture. And as a matter of fact, La Traviata, which is coming up as the last opera, which is my other least opera favorite. Because it has to do with a woman who's a courtesan in Paris around that same late 1800s who, because she has no family, has fallen upon being an entertainment for men because she's beautiful and there's no other role for women in that society and she gets shabbily treated and she dies of tuberculosis and it triggers all my other feelings about the role of women and the inequity of Uh, of social class and the way that poor people are kept poor. A million reasons for not liking that one also. But I probably will love it because they. we'll see when I get there. But anyway, so so I was thinking on the way in, how great. Look at Puccini. He was a commentator on the mores of the time. He was a whistleblower. He was ahead of his time. This was really probably informing people about what was the matter with their culture. I'm thinking. So we go to the opera. I accidentally enjoy it because the singing is lovely. And I have recast uh, Puccini in terms of a whistleblower and a social activist. And uh, we discover that after the opera in the bookstore two streets away, there's going to be a discussion about the opera by several members of the San Francisco Psychoanalytic Society. So we go to that, and these two psychoanalysts discuss the story. So first they tell about Puccini's life. So they say, so Puccini, he uh, fell in love with a woman, it was a married woman with two children, but he, he, he eloped with her, ran away with the two children. So, uh, you know, and I'd built up about Puccini being a pillar of society with the right morals. <laughs> he eloped with a woman to some other place because she couldn't get a divorce because you couldn't get a divorce. But that got taken care of because the husband that she had left got shot by the husband of the woman that he wait a minute that uh, by the husband of a woman that he was carrying on with at that time. (laughs) Therefore, he was shot, and so he's out of the question. So then, Puccini marries this woman, who subsequently denounces their nanny that uh, is taking care of their children, maybe the two children that she brought with her. But she denounces the nanny uh, as having an affair with her husband, for having an affair with her husband. The nanny says, I'm innocent, but she denounces her. The nanny, humiliated, kills herself. It comes to light afterwards from some... Autopsy that she is virginal, so it becomes clear that the the that uh, Puccini's wife is guilty of slander and murder in a, some second degree or something. So she is jailed, and Puccini pays money to get her out from jail without serving her sentence. So I'm sitting there in my view <laughs> of Puccini. As a moral social activist is falling apart <laughs> as I listen it's not a pillar of society i 'm thinking then I'm thinking, well wait a minute, but what is actually the truth? The truth is that the the music is glorious, the singing was wonderful. I am not invited there I have you know I, I don 't go to the opera to be have an ethical instruction, you know, because it's an art form, (laughs) and I really was thinking, I began to think about the ways in which I clutter up my mind with the stories that I tell myself in advance of something, so all the stories, I'm not going to like it, I loved it, Uh, uh, I could, he was really an activist, he was really not an activist, it was this, it was that, it doesn't matter, that, you know, stop thinking, and you'll know stop making up all these plans that turned out all these ideas that are not true Subsequently, so I was on the lookout for where do I make up stories uh, twice this week I read references and somebody's in something or other but uh, somebody says a friend of mine has written a book and she said I'm sure you'd like to read this I read it and in the uh, in the particular chapter that she sent me it's a wonderful reference to Sylvia Boorstein said, da, 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 and I didn't say it. Uh, <laughs> that uh, it was it was actually she told a story about that I had told. It's actually in print somewhere about my husband and I being someplace, and I said something and he said something. What he said was much wiser than what I said, and which actually makes a point, but. Uh, she had it backwards. She had me being wiser. And I thought, oh, I should phone her and say, you know, this isn't true. I wasn't the wiser person. And I thought, why? What does it matter who was wiser? They make the point. She's already written it. She likes it the way it is. It doesn't matter. I don't have to be, you know, that, I don't have to do anything. I watch my mind trying to fix things. Somebody else I heard quoted me somewhere and I thought, well, I should call them up and tell them. And no, you know, it's not your business. You, here's, a, here's a question that you can answer. This is about when do you need to do something? This is in Sunday's New York Times. Uh, someone writes into The Ethicist. Occasionally, when reading a book borrowed from the library, I'll come across an obvious mistake. For example, quote, they left JFK Airport and turned west onto the Belt Parkway towards Suffolk County. Is it ethical to correct the error by drawing a line through the incorrect word and then writing the correct word above or in the margin? I realize that I'm writing in a book that I don't own, but I'm correcting an error, and I only do it in pencil. So so what do you think the ethicist is going to say? He says, don't do that. He said, never write in a book you don't own. The content of a book is whatever the author publishes. It's not a collaborative venture between the writer and yourself. <laughs> Moreover, the error might be deliberate, as you have no way of knowing the author's intent. There's also the possibility that you are wrong about the effect. The f- <laughs> fact you assume is blatantly obvious, and your desire for arcane narrative precision misses the point of what the work is trying to accomplish. And your homemade edit will serve as a distraction for whoever reads the book next. You you don't have to do it. I noticed I was driving along in my car and uh, listening on Sunday morning when they have in-depth news programs on CBS. And there was a very interesting article with the person who's running against uh, Governor Brown in the fall. And often I turn off uh, something that's going to be a polarized kind of a discussion, especially if I know I've already made up my mind. <laughs> but I was driving along, and they asked an interesting question, and uh, the responder answered the question in a kind of an interesting way, and I thought, hmm, you know, and uh, I, this is really not a political place to make political decisions, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I I, th- I realized that my uh, my decision to vote uh, I, I've never voted not for the Democratic candidate, but and who knows I I might not again this fall. But I realized that my decision to vote that way is so multi layered. It, you know, it doesn't have to do so much with who's running but the fact that my grandparents were immigrants who were part of the union movement in New York, that I, I really am so uh, kind of knee-jerk responsive to vote for the party that I think represents the, the, the uh, um, labor segment of our community that I didn't, wasn't even interested in hearing this person, lest I have to change my mind about something. And that I was a little bit discomforted, not by what he was saying, but that it might challenge me. You know, and I thought, whoa, you could think about this. You know, How free is that? Not so free. <laughs> the whole thing about uh, having an opinion is what interested me. Like, here's another opinion. I, I read a quote on Father's Day uh, in a column that Linda Graham put out where uh, she quoted somebody saying... Uh, about his father, uh, as a Father's Day tribute, my father used to play with me and my brothers on the front lawn. My mother would come outside and call out, you're tearing up the lawn, you're tearing up the grass. My father would respond, we're raising boys, not grass. <laughs> Which I thought, that's a really good answer. But then I thought, I thought well, that's a really good answer. You have their eye on the ball, what are you raising? But then I thought to myself, "Wait a minute, they're also raising grass and it's meaningful to that mother. Maybe she planted the lawn. Maybe they could play in the driveway. Maybe there's another, you know maybe there's another way. It's so easy for my mind to say, yes, yes, this is the right and that. There's an old Sufi story about two people who come to a Sufi master and they present their case there for the Sufi master to adjudicate. And person one says their story and their way of seeing it. And the judge says, the, su- the master says, you're right. And then the other one uh-huh. tells a story and the master says, you're right. And uh, someone standing there says, excuse me, but you, uh, you just said that the first person was right and then the second person was right. And the Sufi master says, you're right too. <laughs> you know that, uh, It's very hard. To hold all the realities in your mind and say, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. What, do we not, what are we able to say? I don't know. I'm going to wait and see about that. I was thinking about how much my mind, and I think everybody's mind, gets uh, habituated to a certain way of thinking. And then it's so hard to unthink it. Here's a picture from the cover of time magazine did you see this eat butter so uh did you know about this whole thing with eat butter we've been aware of it in the last couple of weeks it's come to light from recent research that what we've believed for 30 or 40 years about what the about the connection between fatty fats in the diet and obesity and uh heart disease i uh, not true, that uh, actually the whole business of cholesterol and LDL and HDL and da-da-da, it's possible to have a lot of figures and put them together and make it look like adds up to this and this, but it turns out that, uh, that in fact, uh, a diet that doesn't have any fat in it, doesn't have proper metabolism in it, and metabolizes carbohydrates in a peculiar way and changes the whole metabolism. And we have 40 years later, according to this article, the principal reason the fact that obesity and type two diabetes are epidemic in this country is because people have been eating a diet that isn't balanced in the fats and the carbohydrates. Worse, I, I, I heard about this yesterday, and it's so easy to become indignant uh, and indignant is also painful in the mind. The whole reason I'm telling you this is about the painfulness in the mind to, when, when the mind is not able to say, huh, what do you know about that? Hmm. You know, and not fight with it. Um, I very much like the definition of equanimity that I learned from Gil Franzdahl in March when he was teaching. I thought it was one of the best things he said the whole month. He said, equanimity is the ability of the mind to say, hmm, I guess this is what's happening now. I wonder what's gonna happen next. I love that, you know? This is what's happening now means this is what's happening now. You know, and he said, Oh, it shouldn't be like this. It is like that, you know, that the whole idea it shouldn't be. That that I think that that's actually when people talk about wrong view and Ignorance and delusion. I think it's not getting that when things are a certain way, they're there. They're that way because of a reason. Might not be a reason that's laudable. Might not be a reason that makes you happy. But it—it's not. It shouldn't be that way. It's that way for reasons that make sense in some way, and it can change because of reasons and because of things that people do. But how to be able to say, "Hmm, this is how things are." and then that second that little pause that says i wonder what's going to happen next is the pause in which normally indignation would arise I have to do something about this this is terrible who did it who's the culprit i got an email yesterday that went out to probably 2000 people on on uh, on a mailing list i don't know and i'm sure it's it's starting to show up in these articles that uh, it wasn't an accidental mistake, that people were misled into thinking that fats were the problem, that it was engineered by the sugar and the corn interests in this country. Now that really is a little bit. Is it really? You know, it's really. Had I, if I, if I didn't know that uh, that many, many, who knows how many. People became addicted to nicotine because of a conscious corporate attempt to addict them to nicotine. But can you think about that? I can't fit that into my mind that um, people had a conscious intention to mislead a whole population and a whole generation and ultimately a whole planet of people into the problem that of, of, of the current health state. I can't, th- you know, I can think about it, but it's so hard. It's so hard to get that, you know, whether one nefarious plotter or many, or who got together, or how could that be? And I'm also aware, and talking to my family with different family members who have been watching their cholesterol intake. That doesn't have anything to do, apparently, with what cholesterol intake. It has to do that with the balance of things that you eat. And that it's become such that uh, you look at something, you look at a big pat of butter. I think that's why they put it on the cover of this. You look at a big thing of butter, and the people who have been training themselves for thirty or forty years not to eat the butter look at the butter and they think, yuck, you know, because they've been trained to think that it's a, it's a, a, it's really the cause of their death. So to suddenly say, "Eat the butter," can't I eat. Look at the Beautiful spiral, and, and I'm aware. You know what I thought about when I thought about it? you look at the butter. You say, "Would you like some butter?" Butter is all right now. I don't know, you know, that <laughs> it, because it's so it's so in your mind. I spent a month once living in Jerusalem, it's about a decade ago. And um, I had the good fortune to live there. I knew some friends. I was studying with certain teachers. And I lived uh, for that period of time in the part of town that's very traditional in the way they dress. And out of respect for my friends and my teachers and the groups that I were in, well, I were, found myself, I wore long-sleeve blouses. I didn't wear trousers. I wore a skirt that came down past my knees. Uh... You know, I didn't try to pass myself off as a, as a woman who lived in that way, as a, a woman with more um, orthodox lifestyle than I have, but out of respect for the lifestyle around me, that's what I did. So I was sensitive to covering my hair when I went out. That's what people did. That was the right thing to do. I did it for a month, and uh, at the end of the month, my husband and I, on our way to traveling home, Flew down to Eilat, uh, which is on the south end of Israel, right across from Egypt. And Eilat is a um, is a beach resort. People come from all over Europe to that beach resort, and it's a very modern and uh, secular beach resort as part of Israel. But so we check into our hotel and we walk out on the beach, and here's a beach full. Of scantily clad people, and I I remember looking at all these women with minimal bathing suits on, and thinking, "Oh, it's not right." Then I think, "What are you thinking? You know, your daughters look like this. They walk around on beaches in California looking like this. I myself, in in my youth, walked around in bathing suits like that. But I realized that my 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 brain had gotten." Shifted around, so not only did I notice the difference, but I had an aversion to what I was looking at. You know, if you have a mindset, this is not good, this is indiscreet, then you suddenly look. And, ah, this is indiscreet. No, no, it's not. What are you thinking? You know? <laughs> but I, I, I am very much aware that you can't just change your mind in a second. Uh, it even goes back to the Puccini. I can't say to myself, you know, this, or I couldn't. Maybe next time I'll be better at this go back and say, listen, that thought that goes by my mind, I'm not gonna like it, it's gonna fire up all my bad feelings about uh, sexism, about imperialism, about this or that. Why does it have to fire up those bad feelings? You know, It's very interesting to me because I, I go to Wagner a lot, and if I wanted to make a fuss about that, I could make plenty of fuss about things about that. But I actually like the music very much, so I don't bother to think about that stuff. And I'm just thinking about what, what screens that I don't know about are there in my mind. One of the very few stage props in, uh, in this particular production of Butterfly is a Japanese shoji screen. And they keep bringing the screen out and putting it back. And these psychoanalysts discussing the plot said the screen was meant to mean that there are things that you don't want to know and things that you don't want to recognize and things that you don't want to see, like don't bother me, I've made up my mind about who I'm going to vote for, so don't bother me with facts that I might have to think about. And uh, there's a way in which I'm even aware what if some candidate arose who I seriously considered voting for that wasn't in the tradition of my mother and her mother and her mother and her mother, who are all long gone. But me, in my mind, could I do that thinking, what would my mother think? What would her mother think? What would everybody think? How much does, does, not just on the voting thing, but how much of my life is filled up with screens that say, don't do this, don't do that? I was aware, Judy, when you said in our prayers, I want to be authentically myself. You know, if we could find out what the authentic self was, we could be it. (laughs) Maybe it has to do, and um, I'm going to let you think about this a little bit. Maybe it has to do a little bit with really getting used to saying out things uh, that we wouldn't have said before. That's such an oblique sentence. I have to do it again. I went to my granddaughter's graduation from eighth grade. I learned a couple of things. I think there's no situation in which you don't learn dharma because the same things are true all over the place. Here come these 30 people. It's a small school. 30, 14-year-olds walk in, and everybody's got their camera and their projector and their video. And uh, I hadn't thought about this. I was interested about the fact that I I was, in that particular morning, so in a good mood and so buoyed up by uh, how beautiful these children were. I've been. I, afterwards, I thought, you know, I just thought it was sweet, all these people standing in the aisles videoing. And I remember that on other occasions, I had had negative thoughts about the people standing and videoing. I thought to myself, I should see it with their eyes in this present moment, not be recording it for history. First of all, it's not my business. It's their history and their moment, you know. And I, and I thought about it later I thought, it was, what, it was much better to see it without the commentary. I wonder what caused me not to have the commentary. I don't know, maybe Grace? Maybe actually my practice is doing me some good, and I actually. And, I don't, and I'm not having so many opinions about things because I liked it way better than when I was having opinions about all the people standing in the aisles, not being personally, whatever. It's, it's all silly, those opinions. Well, people got and in a in a small school. I think in other small schools as well. Part of the graduation is that each graduate makes a short speech. So imagine thirty people, each going to give a two or three minute speech. It's a long graduation. But everybody is different, and everybody's parent is you know filming and looking. And my favorite speech was um, one of these fourteen year old girls. Who, when it was her turn, she stood up and said, I'm a very good athlete. I play baseball and soccer, and I'm good at basketball. And I've always had trouble with academics. I have a learning disability. The teachers figured that out when I was in the first or second grade. And these teachers in this school have been marvelous with me for the whole eight years they've been really wonderful in helping me walk I think I start to cry work with my disability start in with I play basketball and baseball and I'm very athletic and I'm good at it and I have a learning disability and my friend Joseph Goldstein would say about opinions like that or facts like that if we could say a thing like that which usually carries a lot of freight with it I have a learning disability if you could say, and I have a learning disability, and the sky is blue, mm-hmm. and we're in Marin, or whatever, and it has the same valence as that. Mm-hmm. I have blue eyes or brown eyes. It's just one of the things that people have. And here was an environment that didn't make it problematic for her. Mm-hmm. If I, I, I really appreciated the school for the whole time that my granddaughter was in it. Because she also had a reason to be in it and not in a public school and for reasons of her own, reasons of her own. But uh, I was really, really impressed that that's a particular thing to announce in your graduation from an academic setting and to feel all right about it and to look like you feel all right about it. And I think the message for everybody is, again, you could be who you are. I have this, I have that, I have this, I have that. I've been very impressed the last couple of days I really want you to talk, but I'm going to tell you one more thing just because because I think it's worthwhile. The last two days, yesterday and the day before, the New York Times has run um, a really um, startling um, two-day uh, discussion of postpartum depression. Have you read it? No. It's really been extraordinary. This beautiful woman... Uh, had a child in her 40s and uh, had always wanted to have a child, and it just hadn't worked out. And uh, she was a great aunt to all her nieces and nephews. And in her 40s, she married, she, had a, she became pregnant, she had a child, and she actually committed suicide because she had, uh, she developed a postpartum depression that had in the middle of it a uh, uh, a mistaken belief that she had, uh, through her own ineptitude, left the the child that rolled over and hit its head, this baby, on on nothing on the floor. Gone to neurologist, child is fine. And she had such a a tremendous fixation. It's really a mental aberration on the fact that she had uh, wounded him mortally and that he would never walk and that he would be uh, handicapped forever. And it would be her fault and she ended up taking her own life. It's very, very, it's very, very touching because she she was sure she had maimed the child and she told people about it. And there was some way in which nobody got it. Now, you know, talking about screens, it wasn't that she didn't tell her husband or didn't tell her her doctors or didn't tell her sister. She told everybody and they said, well it'll, you know, it's just not true, it'll pass, the baby is fine, and it's so hard for people, the the the, the, the two-day series is based on the idea that people so don't want to see that this can happen. Here, our story is that you're very, very happy to have had this baby, which she was, and it's not possible for you to be uh, depressed, that... Uh, it has a really terrible ending. She says she uh, put the baby on her on a with one of those baby Bjorns, strapped it on the front of her, and she leaped out of her window. With the baby? With the baby. And she landed on her back, and she died, and the baby didn't. And a few weeks later, he started to walk. Aww. It's a terrible story. It's a terrible story. But in terms of this has now spurred all kinds of consciousness about... Um, Mandatory screening of postpartum women. I mean, it really changes. It could be different. You know, that really to listen to somebody. That if you have the story, you have to be happy. If you're if you have depressed, it's got to be because you're not sleeping enough. You'll get over it, or some some pre or decided reason. Lots of people. You know, I thought to myself. If, we, if I asked a room full of people, well, here's a room full of people. For those people who have had a child, did you ever have a feeling you were going to throw the child out the window? Or something? <laughs> I didn't say that. Phyllis said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not out the window. That's too dramatic, as I just said about her. Did you ever have a feeling, ah? Who had a feeling like that? Everybody had a feeling like that. Did you get scared? Yeah. 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 You know, it's a feeling. This is re- this is really terrific. Thank you very much for coming out, everybody, because it's really true. I think everybody. You know what? I think everybody has every feeling, and most of the time, our own mind screens them for us because that's such an abhorrent feeling. You know, you don't want to you don't want to notice it, and the mind said nah. You know, and it just blocks it out. But sometimes, when you're too sleepy and too tired and too overwrought and you're really you're, your defenses are down, you have that thought, and you accidentally, you accidentally see it. You accidentally know about it. And then it frightens you. And imagine if we had, we will have now, a more informed culture that will say to people, listen, her husband knew she was depressed, her sister knew, they thought it would pass. What if we had a culture that already was wiser about here are groups, Here's a, here's a social worker, here's a this, here's a that. And when somebody really persists in that thought, there are medicines you can take that will stop that. I, I really think um, we're living in such an amazing time where people, we knew that sometimes people thought in a way that was not matching reality. But um, how does that actually work, you know? People are on the cusp of knowing what causes a psychotic breakdown. What causes thoughts that are irrational, and they really uh, are working on the chemistry of fixing that or having a medication that fixes that. But I think you know, it's a, it's a far way to go from. Um, from Puccini, and it's, a, and it's a sad story. But, yeah, you know, thinking about what does it mean if I only stop cherishing opinions, and then you'll see what's true. The opinion, it'll get better, but maybe it won't. But, or even to say, I don't know what's going to happen. That, that I think that's the right answer. I don't know. The, the man who was the founder of the... Um, um uh, Providence Zen Center, well actually students at Brown founded the Providence Zen Center around the teacher that they uh, had adopted as their Zen teacher, who actually was uh, an immigrant from Korea who was uh, managing the laundromat in Providence, and the students were doing their laundry. And they found this really sage, old man, and they installed him in a in, in a in a place, and he became their Zen master. And people like Stephen Mitchell studied with him and lived with him, and Musang, who wrote this wonderful commentary, also studied with him. And if I find my glasses, Oops. whoops, whoops. How about that? No, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. uh's main teaching that people pass on was that he would say, in a not uh, in a Korean dialected English, he would say, "Only keep don't know mind." Don't know. keep what? Don't know mind. Don't don't know. don't know. Don't know. There was a very famous. Um, Oh, let me see if I can tell this story right. There's a very famous meeting between Sansanim, the Providence Zen master, and who was it, Maria? It was uh, Kala Rinpoche. Kala Rinpoche, who was uh, a, a Tibetan Rinpoche teacher. And the students of... Um, let me see, maybe I have to make sure I'm going to tell it to you right. Wait a minute. Uh, okay. The students of these two venerable lineage holders got them together for some kind of a panel discussion or something. And let's see. Okay, so I have to think who had the orange. I think, uh, ah, wait a minute, how does that go? I guess it has to have been Kalu, how does this work? Because uh, I guess it was Kalu who held up an orange and said to Sansanim, what is this? And Sansanim said, don't know. And Kalu said, what is this? And Sansanim said, don't know. And a third time, said, don't know. And Kalu turned to one of his uh, American English-speaking assistants, and said, uh, "Don't they have oranges in Korea?" Uh, that, but I, I may have, I may have messed them up one back the other. But I think that's the way it goes. But his thing was, "Don't arrive at a decision." And now that I'm thinking about it, being right out of uh, to know the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. First of all, it could be a fake orange, you know? Could be a could be a tennis ball painted orange could be a plastic orange like you buy in a dollar store to put on in a in a perennial fruit arrangement bowl might not be a, an orange it might be a tangelo or something you know, that might be something else but that was his thing only keep don't know mine because i think to myself if i don't have a, if i don't have an opinion about whether or not people should be standing in the aisles photographing their child i can just enjoy it if I don't have an opinion about American imperialism, I have a view, I you know, I have a thought about it, but if I don't have an annoying opinion, if I don't have an attachment to that opinion, I can just say, you know, America not only had imperialism in 1900, they still have it now, what do you know? What should we do now? That would be the, equi- the equanimity point of it. Not only did we have imperialism, we still have imperialism. Hmm, this is quoting Gil. Hmm. That's what's happening. I wonder what I should do now. What we should do now. What can anybody do now? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a position that doesn't not see what's going on, but doesn't get uh, um, riled up about it. That, rela- that rests in the awareness. I want to read you a little bit from this and then ask you a question. Here we go. Make the smallest distinction between what you like and what you don't like. And heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. That's a line from this. Uh, And he, in his description, says, heaven and earth are metaphors for opposing dualities that create tension, stress, ill will, for the individual as well as the society at large. In this case, in this poem, heaven and earth point to certain mind states, a sense of ease or a sense of dis-ease. When we're at ease, we feel light and free and bouncy. When we're not at ease, we feel heavy, dark, limited. Sometimes we may feel one way and sometimes the other, and our likes and dislikes come into play, causing us to grasp onto one and shun the other. Equanimity provides a sense of ease that becomes available only after the likes and dislikes have been brought to complete rest. Anytime we make distinctions based on our addictive preferences, there's a lack of harmony, a lack of balance, a sense of incompleteness in our experience of the moment. Even the slightest preference in your whole world becomes deluded. Deluded. Certain wise teachers have pointed out that despite all the claims to the contrary, most human beings don't really wish to see things as they really are. Do you think so? Don't wish to see things as they really are, because this truth is threatening to one's cherished structure of beliefs. Can you think of a situation where you have clung to a belief, and that it caused you pain. When was the last time you felt indignant about something? Huh? <laughs> well, uh, what, were, what, was, what was your thing this morning? No, I mean, were you really thinking of something, Phyllis? I annoyed at my husband for something, you know, it's past. Yeah, it always passes. anybody got annoyed so far today about anything? Annoyed always happens when we think that things should be different. Then we become annoyed. If, we, if, I, if, we, if I left home in the morning thinking, I don't know how it's going to be to get to Spirit Rock today, when I came to Fairfax and they were in fact uh, digging up the road that I was riding on, I had to make a detour. Actually, I didn't get annoyed this morning, come to think of it. I was in a really pretty relaxed mood this morning. And this morning I thought, hmm, a detour. Okay, I did the detour. I could see on another time, not in a relaxed mood, thinking they shouldn't be doing this road work just in the commute hour. They could do it later during the day. Uh, you know, I, I, I think the key is when I have a better idea than what's going on, they shouldn't be doing this. should be another way. I should have not said this. So tell me another example.
1: Yeah. Um, I often think that I get annoyed after my mind does uh, something after an action happens. So it's like driving here, uh, a car was driving really close to me. And I'm mm-hmm. like, really? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I just didn't feel that safe with it. But I watch how my mom was like, really?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and how to say, well, this is, I don't feel safe, but... What can I do now? Can I pull over? Can I let them pass? It's hard to not think, where is that person going? What is the hurry? Why are they doing it? That there's a sort of that growly edge in the mind. It's a mind not at ease. You know, I could imagine the mind, my mind saying, Well, oh, look at that. This person, who knows where they have to go in such a big hurry. I'll just pull over and let them go. May they be well, or, you know, whatever. Ace, what?
1: It's exactly this, but mm-hmm. I actually have a big thing about predicting things mm-hmm. and what's going to happen and play games with that kind of life things. And I would always ask Bromley, he says, What do you think? She says, I don't know. And, and she has the, really the I don't know, and I have to think, But really, what do you think? And says, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And we've done this conversation 800 times. You know, I still but, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's just funny how the, my mind works that way in trying to who's going to win the game or what's going to, what's going to happen. And it's, it's, I'm always looking for the what's going to happen deal.
0: Mm-hmm. And she's into the world. I don't really know. Yeah. It's, it's just, just a funny combination. Well, I think, it's a, I think it's an interesting thing to think about, whether it's a habit or whether it's based on people's different neurology. That uh, I think often when something happens, uh, and I think, uh-oh, this might happen from that, It's maybe which doesn't happen so much if I'm really relaxed, but does happen if I'm if I'm not if I were suppose I was late this morning coming here, and uh, and I came upon that same detour, maybe I would think "Mm, they shouldn't be doing this in the commute hour, you know, I could I every should is not right because I was about to say I could have been thinking I should have left earlier, but every should didn't happen, you know, every should didn't happen. I th- it's just such an interesting part of speech to say should. shouldn't be like this. It is like this.
1: I had an interesting thing happen last week. I was on Facebook, and I like to share inspirational things. And I don't typically share political or viewpoints around that. And, but up came this thing, ah, San Francisco has banned water bottles. And I thought, share if you think everyone should get on board. And I thought, oh, what a great idea. I share it. (laughs) I get a comment (laughs) from my daughter-in-law's future daughter-in-law's mother, who says, "Well, what's everyone going to drink if they don't have single-serve soda, iced tea?" And I went, "Well, her her family is in the water business."
0: (laughs) What was I thinking?
1: thinking? I I was really Felt like wow, I was so un- unmindful in that moment. Like this is their livelihood, and <laughs> I'm coming across with this big opinion. And I, mm-hmm. I wrote her back, and I said, wow, I really get what you know that this is. I'm sorry that I, you know. but then I thought, I know, and I thought about it. She said, no, no. I, I said, please. I hope there's no offense. She goes, no offense, of course. But you know, Massachusetts is asking her to sit on the board because mm-hmm. you know these bottles are recyclable and da da da, and they're used again and. There's a whole nother viewpoint that Mm -hmm. I didn't really think about, you know? So I was like, yeah, you know, keep your viewpoints there. There's (laughs)
0: another. like, like, I don't know. Actually, I don't know. I thought, oh, what a great idea. Yes, but you know what? There's so much I don't know about it. Right. right. Anybody else has another story there? Go. I tend to get annoyed at waiting, and what I do to myself I said,
1: I shouldn't be annoyed at this. And last time it was a total disaster because I waited like for
0: six hours saying I shouldn't keep getting annoyed at this. I <laughs> shouldn't keep getting annoyed at this. That I should be over getting annoyed. I was working with myself, this and that and the other thing. And I ended up throwing my whole body off
1: uh-huh. for
0: like a week because I didn't address the fact that I'm annoyed for whatever the reason. That's I need it. to do something with myself. Yeah. yeah. I was like in the fantasy of uh-huh. what reality should be happening right, right. according to me. I think that's, that's, that's actually extremely helpful. I read a quote yesterday, which I wrote down, I forgot to say, where someone had written in some, about, you know, fix your, if you find yourself in some distressed condition, you could do something about it. Anyway, the quote was, a, pass, a, a grumpy mood is a passing absurdity. Mm-hmm. So I thought to myself, oh, how clever. Then I thought, nah, a grumpy mood is unpleasant. It's a painful. A grumpy mood is pleasant. If I find myself because impatient is a grumpy mood, uh, annoyed, indignant um, is a grumpy mood. They're all grumpy moods, and they're all painful. And saying I shouldn't be having this, but I do have it, you know. Uh, now I'm compounding it by saying I shouldn't have it. So it's like twice. <laughs> it's like taking something bad and making it worse, uh, rather than. Being able to say, you know what, I'm a grumpy mood. I'm I'm in pain. What can I do about this? Why, how can I can take care of myself? How can I have a little compassion for myself? But, you know that a grumpy mood is always. It, you know what I was telling people yesterday somewhere. I said, you know that game Jeopardy, where they tell you the answer, mm-hmm. and you have to say the question. And. Uh, uh, I was saying, you know, I, I I teach people who are learning to be mindfulness teachers now, and they're training to be retreat teachers. And sometimes they ask when we when we meet together, they say, you know, I'm a little tense about teaching in this new situation. What if somebody in the group asks a question that I don't know the that, that I don't know the answer to? What should I do? I said, well, but the thing is, you always know the answer. Whatever anybody, any, whatever anybody asks. The answer is always compassion. It's like Jeopardy. The answer is compassion. And then you can give any Dharma talk in the world, and it fits it, and it'll come to that, and it'll work out to that. Because really, the answer is when you finish the six hours of, of uncomfortableness, you finally realize, look what I'm doing to myself. And your own natural compassion comes up. You say, you know, this is going to happen when it happens, which is really the thing that when you think about impatience, it always has a thing, this should have happened. And really the truth is it'll happen when it happens, and I'm not in charge. And uh, (laughs) you know what I sometimes do as a good antidote, by the way, for uh, um, impatience about it should have happened, is I listen to my mind talking, and it's ridiculous. It says things like this, email will never come. Of course it'll come, you know? Or this bus will never come, or whatever it is that I'm waiting for, it'll never come. I hear my mind saying in its aggrieved way, it'll never happen. Of course it'll happen. but uh, And then I catch myself really, uh, it's not me, it's the habits of my mind that are flaring up my own discontent. Being a little dramatic, I'm a dramatic person. You know, the bus isn't here on time, it'll never come. Of course it'll come, you know, that's a <laughs> Limp. I think the word expectation is an interesting one too because we all have it and personally uh, I will relate it to my son who was a great athlete and a headache, has a good mind and and evolves into some mental illness as an adult how can that be? this can't be him this is this other person and that mind goes on and on but the expectation stays there mm. That, uh, and I think I can see myself with expectation amongst a lot of things, which is just the story. Yeah. You see, the, uh, and, uh, you know, because I know you and I I know about that situation. I think in every situation where we have pain, we keep on hoping it's going to be different, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And it's so hard to be able to Mm -hmm. say, well, you know, and it might be, who knows, tomorrow somebody might discover the ultimate. Therapy or the ultimate pill or the ultimate something uh, that uh, that you just don 't know, and to be able in the meanwhile to say you know i I often wish it were other, but this is how it is it's very hard to do that i I spoke with a friend of mine yesterday who's herself a nurse who has just finished um chemotherapy for um ovarian cancer, and it seems to be gone. It was a really very, very arduous treatment, which you probably know from friends of yours. It's a really, really difficult chemo. And she did it, and she also did every kind of alternative, acupuncture and all kinds of other kinds of therapies and dietary therapies and did everything possible. She said, you know... She said, I have people who say, ah, those are nothing, those therapies. And I have other people, friends, who say Western medicine, ah. She said, I'm doing it all. Mm-hmm. You don't know, you know. Uh, meantime, the cancer has gone from my body. And I'll just assume that everything is working collaboratively. And I don't know what made it better. But to have an open mind. Mm-hmm. I, told, I told her the story of my father who was, uh, when he was uh, diagnosed with uh, a blood cancer, he's dead 30 years now, he not only took the, the medicine that the doctors recommended, they said this is just a, a, a kind of medicine that will slow it down, but uh, maybe you have two years. And he lived seven years. And he took the medicine and his whole disease went into remission. And uh, he also went to every, we took him to every kind of healer in the world. And lo- I love to think of it because he was a mathematician and a realist and a pragmatist, but you know, he was in California, and this was the 19, this is 1980s, and every kind of unusual, strange healer was here, and he did all kinds of things of that, from the point of view of a Western rational mind, and he participated in a, with a whole heart in these things. When he went back to see his doctor after six weeks, and the disease had gone into remission. And the doctor expressed some surprise that it had worked so fast, the medicine, and so completely. And he said, well, I will tell you, I've gone to all these unusual healers and probably said something about some of these healers. And his doctor, I'm happy to say, said, you know what? You need all the help you can get. Uh Uh, That was a great thing. I love that. And I thought, okay. Okay. we all need all the help we can get. (laughs) You know what, in this particular part of the book where he says don't have opinions, there's a certain, there's a paragraph in there that has a caveat. He said, this does not include matters of ethics. There are certain fundamental ethical things that really, you know, are right or wrong. So, Right away, people say, well, would you not have an opinion about is this, you know, is this good or not? I said, no, this is uh, not to, uh, let me read you that one sentence, because it's so important. People say, what about, word of caution. The injunction for not holding any opinion for or against relates to issues of self-identity and self-reification. It does not serve to marginalize the issue of personal and societal ethics the entire framework of the Buddhist teachings depends on sila, personal ethics, and both meditation and wisdom are ultimately in the service of personal ethics. This wi- The wisdom of not holding any opinions liberates us from constant self-referencing, but there is a larger understanding of what's ha- harmful to ourselves and others. And the third Zen patriarch, like all Buddhist teachers, encourages us to live this non-harming life in the service of all. So will you do a homework for next week? Uh, Come next week. How many people are going to be here next week? Come next week. This is the homework. Pick out the sentence from that discourse that you are going to give a 60-second little... Don't stay home because of the homework. Uh That you're going to give a one- to two-minute exegesis about okay you pick out the one that's really interesting to you and figure out what you could say in two minutes about it three if you need it tell a story that makes the point don't you think that'd be a cool thing to do not just me everybody else I think it'd be a really cool thing to do so do that and really until we meet again may you and all beings be peaceful and happy